Voted the third most livable city in the world, Adelaide truly is designed for life. In the Experience Adelaide podcast, hear stories from the people who are creating great experiences and opportunities in the CBD as we showcase the amazing events, hotels, businesses, schools, and more right in the heart of our city. Dr. Tom Nimi is on a mission. He wants everyone to know the six core ingredients of well-being in the hope of preventing mental health issues. A clinical psychologist and director of the Healthy Minds program, Tom is passionate about preventive psychology and teaching people to become mentally healthy, leading them to have more energy, focus and motivation. As heard at Wellfest Adelaide, learn about the six ingredients from Tom and how an Adelaide lifestyle can help you achieve them. Well, there's a lot to say about Healthy Minds, Christina, but um, it's really my passion and it emerged out of my work as a clinical psychologist. So when you hear me talk about being a clinical psychologist, you probably have an image come to mind of a big leather couch and people talking about their problems and uh, dealing with symptoms and distress and things like that. And that's part of what clinical psychologists do, but I prefer to call myself a preventive psychologist because now 100% of my work is around preventing psychological disorders. And that's not your usual psychologist's job. I think of it as psychological immunisation. So, you know, we're all familiar with the idea of vaccinations and dealing Particularly with... Particularly in COVID a, times. Absolutely. And so, we, you know, in that sense, we are very good at thinking of prevention when it comes to biological pathogens. We're good at thinking about prevention when it comes to ergonomics and... But what about immunisation of our thought processes? Yeah, and that's always been a bit more of a complicated question to answer, but I think we've formed a pretty good answer now. So I went to Flinders University again after my establishing my career as a clinical psychologist because I noticed that we do have a good sense of what causes people to be mentally healthy. And in fact, Christina, I prefer the word well-being over the phrase mental health because I think true mental health is about more than your mind. So it's very easy to focus on the mental part of it. But being well is about a few key things. And when I realised that we have some good knowledge about what causes people to be mentally healthy, I thought, you know, let's focus on that. Because what about all the people out there in the world who might never sit on the therapist's couch, but could benefit from learning these skills and these tools? And for me, that was really the beginning of um, a very important process to scientifically test whether we could prevent the onset of things like anxiety and depression. So the short answer to your question is that we can recognise the key ingredients in our life that influence our mental health, of which I think there are six key ingredients. And then we can train ourselves in the psychological skills that help us to be mentally healthy. So we kind of delve down into one of those six uh, factors, which is the psychological stuff. And I think that's the area that's the least well understood in our society. And you say there are six things. Absolutely. You sort of, yes, I, I suppose... Uh a world where there's low-grade anxiety, low-grade depression, which, as you say, may never find its way onto anyone's couch. Yeah. But it is impeding the contribution of that person to the, the fulfilment of their own life, let alone their workforce, let alone the community. Exactly. So, And this is the area that we don't often think about when we think of mental health. We think of ill health 
We think of symptoms and problems, but just like physical health, there's actually a full spectrum of functioning psychologically. Mm. So with our bodies, we recognize that on one end, we might be injured, we might be ill, but at the other end, we've got athletes who are ready to go and run the city to bay and do things like that. But psychologically, we tend not to think of that high-performing spectrum, but it's absolutely there. So one of the happy sort of flow-on effects of doing preventive psychology well is that you end up teaching people how to become very mentally healthy. And when people are very mentally healthy, they have more energy, they have more focus, they have more motivation, they're more productive, they make better partners, their parenting competence increases. All these things that we actually want for ourselves and our society is actually attainable. But most people don't have the framework for thinking about it. If they can't think about it, they can't take action on it. Tell us about the research. Tell us what put you on the path to find this and then tell us how we do it. So it was this intrusive thought that I would have. People would be sitting on my therapist's couch. Sometimes they'd be in distress. I'd be handing the tissue box and I'd have this thought pop into my head. And the thought was, what would have happened for this person if they already knew the things that I'm about to teach them in therapy? Could we have stopped this distress from occurring? And as much as I tried to push it out of my mind and just focus on being the therapist, it just, I couldn't ignore it any longer. So eventually my turning point was recognizing that we have to get this good knowledge out to more people. The research was a four-year project at Flinders University here in South Australia, and it involved about almost a thousand young people. And we took about half of them and taught them a core set of psychological skills, and the others we didn't. And we followed them up over a year. And what we found is that those who had this toolkit, and now we're going to assume that they're all fundamentally healthy. We analysed the data not on people who were experiencing problems, but people who are fundamentally well. And those who are well had a greater tendency to stay well. There was a lower rate of onset of symptoms of anxiety and depression. And this is what kind of proved, if you like, that we have something like a formula. We've got some key ingredients and now we can go about and teach that to people. And when we were chatting earlier, was this sort of, you've built on built on this from Martin Seligman's work in positive psychology? Well, yeah, I, I think positive psychology is part of it. Um, before it was called positive psychology, Martin Seligman was working on how to prevent depression. And then he kind of took this angle a bit like we do, that we want to look for not just not being unwell, but how do we become very well? And he, he's been a pioneer. So I've got enormous respect for Professor Seligman. I've had the good fortune of meeting him a couple of times. And I know he's done a lot of work here in South Australia uh, as a thinker in residence, you might recall. Um, but I also think we've built on that. I think that's a good way to characterise it. I think we've, we've found a new evolution. And what we teach is a combination of um, sophisticated psychological skills to prevent problems, um, but also um, a framework that helps people to self-manage. You know, that's what we want. You shouldn't have to go to the therapist to figure out how to do this. Um, and uh, that's really what we're what we're doing now. We can tell people the six core ingredients to their well-being. We call it the well-being wheel. Um, and uh, if anyone visits our, our website at healthymindsprogram.com, they, they can see the well-being wheel. Um, and the six key ingredients, I mean, we specialise in the psychological skills, which is one of them. But let me take you around the wheel quickly because people listening might think, aha, this is the area that I've been missing or this is what I need to work on. So number one, primary relationships. 
Now, this doesn't sound like rocket science, but this often gets missed in models of mental health, is thinking about how healthy and encouraging and supportive our relationships are. Um, if, if we have that, it adds to our well-being. If we don't, it detracts from it. And it's highly reciprocal. Very much so. So you can influence somebody's well-being by being a good friend, by being supportive, by being a listener, building connectedness to them. There's also some work, quite a lot of work, I believe, looking at the value of pets and the reciprocal relationship with our pets. How does that fit into your model? Well, I think it is part of our primary relationships. You know, there's, there's no rule that says our most close and supportive and important relationships have to be human. Pets are so loving and, you know, even on that kind of neurobiological level, when you have a pet on your lap or you're giving your dog or your cat or whoever cuddle and a paddle they're laying on you that's actually giving us an oxytocin release we're actually getting a little it's a very mammalian thing that when we have this touch it's a whole body response and we we feel it emotionally we we know that there's uh, these neurochemicals released that make you feel feel good and feel better it's a significant stress reliever so i think pets are Oh, just such an amazing part of many people's well-being. It's certainly true for me. To me, it's just touch. But you were talking about it with a release of oxytocin. Yeah, it's which a, is it's it's the chemical that's released in your brain when you cuddle someone. It's also a, we get a release of it if we see someone we love and they're smiling at us. You know, just a little bit, and we get that if we're um feel you know having that cuddle that touch with with a pet um so as you say this all comes under that delicious important umbrella of primary relationships mm. whether they've got two legs or four yeah there's no criteria regarding legs so that's part of it then we come to biological needs and bodily health so people think that your body's completely separate from your mental health well it's not the knee bone is connected to the thigh bone <laughs> it is and you know we can understand this readily like if if we have a terrible night's sleep and we're hungry and we're dehydrated we're not going to have a very high level of tolerance for strong emotions are we like we just not so there's some fundamental things like hydration sleep nutrition the third factor is exercise and this is one that we think of for our bodies, but vigorous exercise is a reliable mental health strategy because people tend to feel better after they exercise. It boosts your mood, it relieves stress. So that's the third factor. The fourth one is psychological skills, and that's one we might delve into in a minute. Mm -hmm. This is the one I think people struggle with the most. Then we come to what I call the balance segment. And this is about having fun for fun's sake having interests outside of your work, having a social life. And this is what I think the City of Adelaide does really well, in fact. It gives us opportunities to indulge this well-being factor. And there's a surprising amount of scientific evidence to say that you should be out there having fun, seeing your friends, doing interesting things. And then finally, we come to what I call the big picture segment. And this is about meaning and purpose. This is kind of about your values, what really matters in life? Are you living according to what really matters? Um, and there's some, been some very interesting research to say that if you have a strong sense of purpose in life, you're likely to live longer than someone who doesn't, even when we control for medical variables. So when your listeners think about those six things, they might all of a sudden have some thoughts come to mind that, well, actually I could do this or I could do that. And we start generating strategies. So even if anybody listening just said, well, what's one thing that I could do? that's likely to boost at least one of those factors, they're starting to become a self-manager of their well-being. They're, they're bringing themselves along that continuum. They're raising that state of mental health. And so that's a good way of thinking about it. I like the idea of self-managing. And then you said the psychological skills. 
and you cap that that uh, draw part, and you open it for us. Sure can. I can tell you the major risk factor that we were able to reduce in young people that helped them to be mentally healthy. There's this thing called unhelpful perfectionism. Well, you know, we've got, we live in a very image focused world. We kind of, we're used to seeing people's good points and highlights and their best photo and all of these things. And I think we've come to set the bar pretty high for ourselves. Now, it's okay to strive to do well and to want to achieve things. I think that's fine. I think that's healthy. But we notice in some people, the striving becomes so intense that it gets in the way it actually starts to cause problems. So someone who's very high in perfectionism will find themselves to just take too long on tasks. They're kind of reworking and editing it and checking it and checking it. And they haven't got onto the next thing or they haven't gone to bed on time or they're not spending time with their families. And that intensity actually causes risk for things like anxiety and depression. So one of the things we teach people is to become an anti-perfectionist, to see the value in mistakes, to look at challenges and failures, even you know when things don't work out. That's often when we learn the most. And so if we reframe our life stories in that way, we don't just file it away as, oh, that was bad. We ask ourselves, what did I learn? And if we ask ourselves, what did I learn? All paths lead to growth. So that instead of saying failure, you say challenge and learning. Absolutely. Absolutely. So one of the core skills or um, one of the secrets to a healthy mind, we sometimes call it, and they're not really secret, but it's as if they were secret because I think some of these things just aren't common knowledge. And one of the secrets that we teach is that the most important relationship in your life is the one you have with yourself. So for people who are maybe a bit perfectionistic, or even if they're not perfectionists, but they're tough on themselves, they're self-critical, they make a mistake and they find themselves judging themselves harshly. You know, often we might talk to ourselves, as in our stream of consciousness, our self-talk, in a way that we would never talk to someone else. And this idea of self-compassion has turned out to be a protective factor. So where we see perfectionism as a risk factor for things like anxiety and depression, self-compassion, treating yourself with kindness, acceptance, encouragement, this is actually protective. This helps us to dust ourselves off if we make a mistake. It helps us to get ourselves and give ourselves what we need when times are difficult. And that's been a biggie. People really relate to that one. Your your messages are generic for all ages, are they not? They are. How are you getting that message out? We're now working globally. And this has been a remarkable experience to go from just thinking about how can we teach young people to have a healthy mind to then having teachers and parents say that they were benefiting from the skills we were teaching young people. And then uh, five years ago, I formed a partnership with Nick Lee who uh, of the Jody Lee Foundation. A lot of people familiar with Adelaide might uh, be aware of that. It's a bowel cancer prevention charity. And after Nick lost his wife to bowel cancer and realised that he's the theme of prevention again, that we can actually screen for the early signs of bowel cancer. He set up the Jodie Lee Foundation and did a lot of work with companies all around Australia and has saved many people's lives. When he would talk to companies and say, well, what else are you doing for, for the well-being of your staff? What he noticed was almost all of them were saying, well, we need to do something for mental health and we're not quite sure what to do, but we need to do more. So Nick approached me um, six or seven years ago and eventually became a co-director at Healthy Minds. And he was really the open door to our corporate program 
And we've worked now with companies large and small. And in, so we're doing work to Latin America and the Caribbean with London, New York, Tokyo, um, all hours of the day and night getting on the Zoom and, and teaching these fundamental skills. And it's been so rewarding to feel that from Adelaide, we're having this global reach now. And if you can create a culture of well-being in an organisation, then you're likely to have people who are more productive and engaged and less likely to take leave or to leave their job. If we do that really well, and we don't just think of it as something that's off to the side, like a, a box we've got to tick, and if it permeates the culture, then all of these other business metrics, the things that affect the bottom line of a business, start to improve. You know, if you accept that well-being and performance go hand in hand, which I believe they do, and there's a lot of evidence that they do, and we foresee that this is going to become a routine part of management practice around the world eventually, that we normalise wellbeing conversations, we know what's going on with our people, and if something's wrong, we're aware of it early and often so we can intervene. You're also doing this in school. And the schoolwork is really close to my heart. I mean, this is where it all began because... These healthy mind skills, I wanted to know when I was 13. It would have helped me immensely. Wouldn't we all? This is what I always hear. You know, uh, it's just so rewarding. I routinely speak to groups of 250 adolescents, you know, year eight students, 13, 14-year-old kids, and I just love that part of my work. I mean, they just, when you, when you have that engagement from them, and you're, you can see that they get it. It's just amazing. And, you know, when, when we finish up, we do kind of an eight-week program. We meet with these year eights en masse for uh, once a week for eight weeks. They've also got classroom lessons. They've got workbooks that they work through. And when we finish that up and kids completely unprompted want to pull me aside and say, they really earnestly say, thank you for teaching me that. I just leave those schools walking on air. It's just so satisfying, and I know that it's going to help them in the future. You know, we, we still have so many myths around mental health, so many stereotypes that just get in the way. They get in the way of the conversation about well-being. They get in the way of the self-management. Um, so I spend a lot of time busting myths around it. And we've got to get the word out there. I've been lucky enough to be invited to write some columns for the advertiser and bits and pieces here and there. And I love that opportunity because I think, aside from getting vaccinated, the biggest public health opportunity for any city, for any state or country, is teaching psychological skills, teaching the sophisticated concepts that help. And you know, this is about telling people that being well is about, it's not about always feeling happy. That's one of the myths. You know, people equate mental health with feeling good. Well, it's good to feel good regularly, but guess what? It's not normal to feel up in mood 24-7. If I met someone who said they felt really up in mood 24 hours a day, seven days a week, I'd think, what psychological disorder does this person have? So we've got to get through some of these myths. So let's be well. And then when our well-being is high, happy feelings naturally follow. So that, that's what we want to teach people. We want to bust this myth that stress is always bad. That's another myth. People assume, well, stress is always harmful. Well, actually, you're likely to perform better if you have moderate stress than if you've got none at all. And the other big myth is positive thinking. Now, I'm not saying don't be a positive person or have positive intentions, but when real-world problems arise, just thinking positive thoughts doesn't usually solve the problem. <laughs> uh, no, no, it, it, it does not. It does not. 
we need to understand a bit more about emotions and where they come from. So um, it sort of builds on that idea of I should feel good all the time. I often teach people that emotions are like the weather. They're designed to come and go. So, so many people out there are judging themselves. I don't, I don't feel great in this moment. I don't feel happy. Or if they do have a negative emotion, they assume something's wrong. And we call this emotional reasoning. If I feel something and I assume that something else must be true, that's emotional reasoning. I'm drawing a conclusion from how I feel. So I'll give you an example. If I feel embarrassed, I must have said something stupid. That's emotional reasoning. And, and it's not very accurate. So people assume, they draw these conclusions from feeling different emotions that actually are just part of a rich and meaningful life. You know, if we wanted to feel calm and comfortable all the time, would we get out of bed, Christina? Like, we, we probably wouldn't. We wouldn't have ambition. We wouldn't have big goals. Um, we wouldn't go to work. We wouldn't be parents, that's for sure. A lot of things that are really important and worthwhile are not comfortable, have risk. We've got to deal with the uncertainty and the possibility that we'll be disappointed. But the flip side of that uh, is all the rich rewards that can come from these meaningful and interesting things. I like the sound of that very much. You and I are talking now right in the heart of the city of Adelaide. What can we do here? Well, let's utilise some of the resources that we have here. I mean, I think when I think about wellbeing and I think about some of the things we've talked about, whether it's exercise, um, biological needs, you know, we have these gorgeous parklands. We, we have these natural resources here uh, around our city. Colonel Light was very wise, ahead of his time. What a legend Colonel Light was, because if you, you couldn't plan it better yourself now, could you? The beach at one end, we've got the hills at the other. I live in the Adelaide Hills. I absolutely love it there. Um, we've got this nature accessible to us, and many places of the world don't have that. They have these sprawling um, urban areas, whereas we have these rich parklands. We've got trees. We've got water. Um, and if, you, if you're into this, you've got vineyards. Well, leading vineyards and orchards all around us. Um, I think that's an ingredient to well-being. So time spent in nature literally has been studied. There are published peer-reviewed articles about the impact of that, the positive impact on that on a person's well-being. And we've got that in abundance. We've also got the opportunity for things like the exercise opportunities, going for a run around Victoria Park. You know, that was my daily routine for years. And it's just, it becomes part of your, your mental health, your stress relieving, how you, how you deal with your day. And, and we've got that in spades. And, and what about food as, as our fuel? How important is that? It is really important. So you can think about it from the biological perspective. Am I getting the nutrients I need? But the thing that Adelaide does extraordinarily well is we have such a variety of very high quality restaurants. So yeah, we're nurturing ourselves, but think about the social and aesthetic benefits from eating out. I mean, it's a great way of building quite a few well-being factors together because you can nurture your primary relationships, you can give your life a sense of fun and balance, and you can get the nutrients you need. So really good well-being strategies really stack those well-being factors, and we can do that here. The doctor's prescribing it now. Go out and have fun. I think it's something we all need. The City Council is obviously uh, working with this and we, we get some uh, some really good sort of initiatives coming up, sort of you know, festivals around feeling good. How do you see they can help contribute as well? It raises our consciousness around what we can do. So, you know, to have a, a festival of well-being or a festival of feeling good, it's an opportunity for people to learn about some of these things that we're talking about today to find those interests or those healthy activities that um, they need to incorporate into their life. So 
you know, if we get people together, if we explore these ideas, and if people get that new knowledge that they can incorporate into their lives, uh, it's just it's such a benefit for the community. You know, our our well being as a city um, could collectively increase. You know, that that's a metric. We measure all these other things, don't we, around our city and and, and all these other factors around in the environment. But um, what about our well being? And what if we could lift a point or two on everyone's well-being wheel. So the idea of having a festival focused on that is outstanding. But for anyone listening, it's about our own context, isn't it? Our stage of life, what what we're facing at the moment. That research around purpose is really significant for people in retirement. If someone's sense of purpose is kind of all my eggs in one basket, if there's anyone listening who thinks, oh gosh, all, all my eggs are in one basket and it's the work basket, and if, if they're approaching retirement age, don't wait until that day to think, okay, what next? <laughs> we want to actually start asking ourselves that question. And if we've, um, if we've got all our eggs in one basket, just bring in another basket and put a couple of eggs in that. So is that an interest? Is that um, uh, volunteering? Is it like a cause that you feel passionate about? Sometimes grandparenting becomes the, the sense of purpose and how, how rewarding that can be. So just don't, you know, it's all about prevention, isn't it, Christina? That's what we're talking about. So don't wait until that day. Get some of those other th- important things happening. This is the thing when if people say to me, that sounds sensible, I think that's the best compliment we can get for our work because if it's going to work en masse for a whole city, a whole community, it's got to be accessible. It's got to make sense and it's got to be easy to understand. It doesn't mean that there's no sophistication to it because the challenge for us is threading those six ingredients together. Self-management is about not going onto autopilot and forgetting about it, but doing, say, doing your own well-being review once a month or once a quarter or whatever it might be, sharing it with your family and friends, and then really... Yeah, taking on that task. I think one of the psychological skills that people struggle with is, you know, we mentioned positive thinking isn't so much the thing to solve your problems. Balanced, helpful and realistic thinking is what healthy thinking is. So this is a little bit trickier. Balanced thinking is about looking at more than one angle to a situation. It's helpful thinking if it helps us experience an emotion that is appropriate. And it helps us make a good decision about what to do next. And healthy thinking is also realistic. It's also accurate. We're not overestimating risk and feeling panicked all the time, but we're not underestimating risk and being reckless either. You know, if, if anyone thinks, oh, maybe, you know, maybe there is more to this thinking stuff, um, I would recommend next time your emotions are not like the weather. So you're, you're feeling a bit stuck. So let's just say it's been several days and you're still worried and you've been worried every day. I would get people to... Write a simple sentence down. I'm feeling worried in this case because I am thinking and to finish that sentence. If we can identify that thought that's driving the feeling, we can then simply ask ourselves to rewrite that thought, but with these three criteria in mind. I want to make it more balanced. I want to make this more helpful to me, and I want to make it more realistic. And if we do that, that's how we change our thinking. That's how we become healthy thinkers. And this is a big antidote to anxiety, to depression, to other problems. So it's up to us to take on that task. And just like we go for a jog, we've got to do our healthy mind skills as well. And anything else? Any closing statements that you'd like to make? I just think Adelaide is such a good base. It, you know, I've um, you know, had, had the opportunity to, to travel a lot uh, with my work. Um, 
I, I just, I've, I've never thought there is anywhere else that I would want to live than here. Uh, we've got relationships, you know, you can form connections and they mean something and um, people want to help other people. And from a, an entrepreneur's perspective, I think there's a lot of support and a lot of feeling that people in Adelaide want to help each other succeed. Um, there's never been a better time to be an entrepreneur. And I think if you combine that with Adelaide being no better place to be an entrepreneur, then that's an amazing home base. And as I said earlier, you know, we're lucky enough and fortunate enough to do work globally at the moment, and we can do it very successfully from here. And I, I love that. Now, you, I understand, have a book on this. I have. It's called Tell us more. It's called Apples for the Mind. And uh, so you get the link there with prevention, apple a day, right? Apples for the mind. Uh, I wrote this book because I wanted to feel that I'd put it out into the world and that any time someone could access all of the findings, the main findings out of my research, all of the things that I teach people in our workshops, and it's in the book, Apples for the Minds. This podcast is brought to you by the Adelaide Economic Development Agency. Follow us at Experience ADL on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or visit experienceadelaide.com.au for everything you need to know about visiting, living, working, studying, and investing in Adelaide.